Good morning, everyone. I told the first service that it seemed like everyone was in a particularly good mood uh, this morning. I'm not quite sure why that is. It may have to do with something that happened yesterday, but anyway, I'll leave that leave that for maybe after the service is over. Um, if you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Not 1 Corinthians that we've been in, but 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, page 230 in your few Bibles. Since it's chapter 7, obviously we are jumping into the middle of a story. Uh, just to set some a very brief context for you, uh, we have come to the end of the time of the judges. Uh, Samuel is in leadership in, in Israel right now. He, he signifies the end of the time of the judges, but we haven't yet started the time of the kings. Uh, we'll get some context for that in the next chapter, chapter 8, uh, and then we'll be introduced to Saul in chapter 9, and then Saul will be anointed king in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. So just to let you know a little bit about what's going on. Uh, this is an example of when Israel gets it right. Okay, They don't often get it right. In fact, the next chapter they're not going to get it right. But for the purposes of the sermon this morning, they get it right. And what they're going to show us in this story, one is about repentance, uh, but also is about the amazing mercy of God, how merciful he is to us, and we don't deserve his mercy. But yet we ought to be looking for it. We ought to be praying for it. We ought to be remembering that mercy. Let me read. We're going to study the whole chapter, but I'm just going to begin by reading the first four verses. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give us ears to hear this morning as we study your word? Lord, would you write these truths upon our heart? Would you give us hearts of daily repentance? Now, repentance that trust in you, and it is glad in the mercy that you give us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you know, uh, at the end of this month, we will be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, or at least what we consider to be the igniter of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther. Uh, and the, the ignition, if you will, is when he nailed the 95 theses onto the church door in Wittenberg. Uh, it, little did he know, he certainly didn't know he was starting such a revolution. He didn't know the magnitude to which that would eventually lead. But he, he nailed these theses onto the door just kind of hoping to spark a discussion, a community discussion about theology. But of course the printing press had been invented and so on and on we went and it gets published and and around, the, uh, around Europe it went. Do you know what the first thesis says? Here is the first thesis in the list of 95. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. If you know much about the theses, it's typically about the abuses of the church. It begins in a different tone, although certainly repentance was a, was a theological point that the Catholic Church at that time had wrong, but he focuses in on repentance Repentance is not just a one-time thing under conversion, although that's necessary. It's something that's daily. It's a constant life of repentance, of turning away from our sin and towards God and faith. 
It fits quite nicely with our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of, and endeavor after, new obedience. So this repentance that's required of us is a saving grace that's also given to us. And what does that repentance do? One, it, it acknowledges sin. It has a true sense of it, that it's, it's uh, enmity with God. It's, it's committing an act against a holy God. It's, it's bad and wrong. We don't want to do it anymore. But at the same time, it has an apprehension of the mercy of God. We're not coming before this monster. No, it's a merciful and warm God that says, if you repent of those sins, I receive you. Israel is going to see this warmth in this passage. And then the question closes with, it, has it, it, it endeavors after new obedience. You don't repent once and, okay, great, you check that off the list, now go and live however you please. It's a complete new direction that you're going to daily and constantly. Because you know as a Christian that the old way, the old enticements of sin, they're constantly there. They don't seem to ever leave you alone. And so what Luther says and, and what our confession says, or our catechism says, it's a daily thing. Bad sin, turn towards God, turn, turn towards Christ in faith. Because we serve a loving and merciful God. We must prepare ourselves to receive that mercy. We must pray for that mercy. And then we must reflect upon all the ways that God has been merciful to us in our life. So number one, preparation and God's mercy. To understand 1 Samuel chapter 7, you've got to understand 1 Samuel chapter 4. They, they really just kind of go hand in hand. I'll mention that again as we go along. The Ark of the Covenant has been in Kiriath-Jerim for the past 20 years, and it says in verse 2 that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I don't think that means they've been lamenting for 20 years. The, the lamentation is coming kind of at the end of that. But we learn that the Israelites have experienced a devastating military defeat at the hand of the Philistines. And so for the last 20 years, they've kind of been underneath the thumb of the Philistines, mistreating them and exerting some kind of uh, power over them. And there can't, we learn in chapter 4, Israel is encamped at a city named Ebenezer. They go out against the Philistines, and 4,000 of them were killed. So they retreat back to camp, and all the elders of Israel gather around and say, well, what happened? This is, we're supposed to go out and win. Why, why did we not win? Why did, has God defeated us today, they ask. So in chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from here, to, from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The Ark of the Covenant may save us from the power of our enemies. As if it has magical powers that as long as we get the Ark of the Covenant here, then everything's going to be fine. <clears throat> so as soon as the Ark comes into the camp with their newfound confidence, they go back out into battle, and this time, 30,000 Israelites are killed. It doesn't have the effect that they anticipated that it would. Why? Israel had presumed upon God's favor. We just need an object. We don't need a covenant God. We just need some furniture, right, to come into our midst and everything will be fine. They lament this defeat. This is what they're upset about. For 20 years, this has been going on. So now in chapter 7, Samuel sees how sad Israel is, and he steps in with these words. If, if Israel, 
you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. If this is legitimate repentance, okay, you can't just feel bad about it. You can't just be upset. It can't just be an emotional response. You've also got to put away all the foreign gods that you've accumulated for yourself since living in Canaan. The grief and the sorrow, great starting point for us in repentance. It's got to start, I feel bad about what I did, but do you feel bad about what you did because you don't like the consequences or truly because you have sinned against a holy God? Because repentance goes past emotions into endeavoring after a new obedience, a new path that you're now committed to. If they wanted God, mercy from God, just being sad about their circumstances wasn't enough. They needed something tangible, a tangible repentance. <clears throat> Martin Luther, as I mentioned in the beginning, talked about repentance a lot. Now, he became an Augustinian monk. Now, he would say later in his life he wasn't converted when he became a monk initially. But religious experience was something that he believed, if he did enough of it, that he would earn God's favor. He would earn righteousness by doing good things. So when he became a monk, he turned all of his religious exercises into a means of quenching this guilt he felt within. I have guilt and shame before God because I sin. Well, how am I going to deal with that? I'm going to do more religious stuff, okay? And so he did. I've never been to Germany in the winter, but I'm told it's unbearably cold. And so what would Martin Luther do? He would sleep without blankets, okay, because he believed that that was penance. He was rightfully paying for his sin. He would walk up a flight of stairs, and at each step, he would stop and utter a prayer. He'd take another step and utter another prayer. I mean, I would hate to be walking behind him on the flight way up the steps. Four to five times a day, he would go to confession before the priest, just with such passion, confessing his sins, Lord, forgive me for what I've done, driving the priest crazy in the monastery. He knew nothing of the mercy of God in Christ. He knew nothing of a joyful and thankful heart for what Christ has done because he thought he had to earn it all. Really, his religious experience had become an idol for him. He had put it above everything else. And finally, it was a reading of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that he realized it's a righteousness that's from God, not a righteousness I have to earn, that, that I, I, I accumulate enough of it. It's a righteousness that's given to me. I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. And it became quite freeing to him once the Lord showed that to him. Now, in one sense, Luther was right. In this repentance, it's daily and it's constant. That's true. But it's out of gratitude and thankfulness, not out of a, I'm earning something or I'm quenching a guilt that I feel. Samuel is calling Israel to repentance in this passage, but it's going to be difficult. It isn't just an emotional response. It's much more than that. They are to put away their male and female idols, Baal and Ashtoreth. They were their fertility gods. Canaanite religion had a combination of sex and worship. If you'll pardon the crass quotation here, I think it accurately describes, it says, there was chapel and brothel at one location. Do you want your crops to grow? Great. Come and offer your bodies at the temple and your crops will grow. So they were told. Israel is in bondage to these gods. It's not going to be an easy breaking away from them, hardly. If you this morning 
are in bondage to sexual sin, pornography, sexual idolatry, you know that only a supernatural repentance is going to do. What do I mean by that? It, when we repent, it's not a call to, okay, get up all the willpower you got inside, all the intestinal fortitude. You can do it. No. It's a repentance that only can be given to you, a, a something from the Holy Spirit that empowers you to put away all of this. Because you know the arguments. The arguments of sexual sin and pornography, you know that it hurts your spouse, it hurts you, it desensitizes you, it hurts your kids, it's sexual perversion, it's a breaking of the marriage vows, it supports the pornography and sex industry. You know the arguments, but it's been my experience as a pastor, those have very little sway with people. It's a supernatural repentance that we must offer to him to find that mercy and to be delivered from the bondage that those things often have over us. And it's not just sexual sin. It includes that, but what other idols do we have? What other things? It's not, a, it's not a little statue that we bow before. It's something that you have put above God in your life. It's more important to you than God. You wouldn't admit that to anyone, of course, but your time reflects this. Where you spend your money reflects this. We see this, I think, most often in our jobs. We put our jobs as the most important thing that we have. They're more important than our family to us. We get home and we can't get off our phone. We get home and we can't stop responding to emails. We put it more important oftentimes as even the very worship of God. I've got to get this project done. It's just one Sunday. I'm not going to go to worship this week because I'm going to the office and I'm going to finish what I've got to get done. It's become an idol to you. Our jobs can be that, and many other things we could include. These idols keep us from keeping God in the first place. They're not just bad habits, friends. They're dangerous to our spiritual lives. William Cowper, uh, the 18th century hymnist, wrote, Oh, for a closer walk with God. And in that song, here's one of the stanzas. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. What's so wonderful about this mercy is that we have a, or what's so wonderful about this repentance is the great incentive that we have to do it. It's before a merciful God. It's before a God that says, please come to me, repent. Mercy is waiting for you. It's not this angry villain over here that we're repenting before, and maybe he'll accept you and maybe he won't. If you come repenting of your sin, seeking Christ in faith, mercy is yours. Come and find that. Number two, prayer and God's mercy. So Israel's gone through the repentance. They've gone through the emotional repentance. They've gone through the tangible repentance. <coughs> Samuel has prayed for them. In the next scene, though, we see the Philistines have, have caught wind of this gathering that the Israelites have had. Like, wait a minute, what's going on over there? It's a revolt. We need to go and put them down. Okay, so they, they gather their troops, the Philistines do, and they go out to now attack the Israelites. And the Israelites are terrified. Wouldn't you be? The, the, the nation that had conquered them 20 years before is coming after them again. So what do they do? They go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And then he takes a lamb and he offers a burnt offering to the Lord. And he cries out and it says the Lord answered them. 
In their terror, they go to Samuel. Samuel, don't stop praying for us, please. That maybe, just maybe, the Lord will save us from the hand of the Philistines. In the beginning, I told you the the, the link between chapter 4 and chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Let's look into it a bit more. In chapter 4, Israel is struck down by the Philistines. In chapter 7, the Philistines are struck down by the Israelites. In chapter 4, Israel thinks they can manipulate God by having the Ark of the Covenant. In chapter 7, Israel just drops to their knees in repentance, and they beg for somebody to intercede for them. (coughs) In chapter 4, they presume upon God. We can coerce him if we just have have this Ark Ark of the Covenant with us. Chapter 7, they presume upon nothing. We've got nothing. Their true weapon here is prayer. It's always our only weapon. Their only hope is for Samuel to offer their request before the throne of God, which he does. In verse 10 it says, The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. See, Israel has been stripped down to nothing. They have no confidence in themselves. Ark of the Covenant didn't work. Our armies didn't work. We, we got nothing. All we can do now is pray. All we can do now is plead for mercy from God. If you've ever read a biography of Martin Luther, uh, there very little, typically, very little detail is given to his early life. It, the main stuff starts in the thunderstorm. You know the story of the thunderstorm with Martin Luther. He's caught in a thunderstorm one night. It's 1505. He's about a 22-year-old young man. And he's terrified. You've been in a thunderstorm before. It's, it's terrifying. The rain and the thunder and... Well, for us, the tornado warnings, you don't want to be caught in the vortex, right? Isn't that what the meteorologists usually say? Of course, he didn't know anything about that. But he's terrified because of this thunderstorm. A lightning bolt strikes next to him, and he scurries under a tree. He writes later that he assumed that he would die that night. And he stops and he prays. He doesn't pray to God that night. He prays to St. Anne. After all, he was a good Catholic, okay? He cries out, St. Anne, save me! Now, St. Anne, Catholics believe, was the mother of Mary. And we don't, there's no biblical support for that, but that's typically what uh, the Catholics think, that she, uh, that she was the mother of Mary. But she's also, among other things, was the patron saint of minors. Uh, Martin Luther's father was a minor. Um, also, that she was the patron saint of people who were caught in storms. And so that's who you cried out to if you were caught into a storm. She would give you help. And so she, he says... If you'll save me from this, I'll leave my, I won't be in law school anymore, I won't pursue that, I'll go into the ministry. Uh, which, of course, he is saved from that storm, and he does go into the ministry, uh, much to the chagrin of his own father. <laughs> that night, Martin Luther was completely helpless. He was utterly desperate. And so he makes this uh, outlandish uh, statement, I, okay, I'll go into the ministry if you just save me, which he does, and we're thankful that he did. Utter helplessness is our true state at all times as a Christian, whether we're willing to admit it or not. You know, we think that we progress as a Christian, or our church progresses, or, or we advance, uh, or we, you know, we're, we reach the lost, and, and, we, and we think it's because, as one commentator put it, it's our own evangelical cleverness. No, it's because a holy God interceded and allowed it to be so. You know, there are times in our life when God strips us down. He takes all our helps away. He removes support. He boxes us in. He removes our defenses. He shows us how desperate we are. 
There's now nothing we can say, well, maybe it was because I did that or I didn't do that. No, there are times when he takes, he takes it all away. And that's a great place to be. And why is it when we're brought to this place, we think, well, I've tried everything else. Maybe now I'll start praying. Maybe now, maybe that's what I really need to do when it should have, be, should have been what we did in the first place. God has brought Israel to her knees, and he very often brings us to our knees. Maybe you were right there this morning. Everything seems to you to be crashing down around you in your own life. Nothing's going right. Nothing's going the way you planned. And for the most part, it's your own fault. You exhausted all avenues. You feel helpless. This passage tells us that's a great place to be. It's a great place when you realize all I've got now is to plead for the mercy of God for my own soul for my life, for my repentance, for this sin that I'm struggling with, whatever it may be. It's right where he wants you. Seeing he is everything to you, and what you can do is truly nothing. Lastly, the past and God's mercy. This passage says that God enabled Israel to rout the Philistines. A major victory, kind of reversing chapter 4. So as a result of this great victory... Samuel sets up a monument to commemorate all of this. It says in verse 12 that Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Some of your translations may say, up to this point he has helped us. What's Samuel saying here? Up, from when up to this point? Is, he t- is it like 10 minutes ago up to this point? No, it's all of Israel's history up to this point. He has helped us. He has provided for us. It's common in the scriptures for God's people to set up monuments or Ebenezer's or stones of help, stones of remembrance. They all basically mean the same thing. Abraham does this. Jacob does this. Joshua does this. We should do the same thing in our own lives. We may not set up literal monuments to the things that God has done, but you do that in some way. Maybe some of you have a prayer journal. You write down the prayer requests that you have, and then when the Lord answers those prayers, you go back and write down the ways that he has answered those prayers. That would be an example of an Ebenezer that you could have in your own life, a stone of help. Because after all, we do need to be reminded. We forget all that he has done for us. He has done so much. He has helped. He has been merciful so many times that we just we don't remember. And so we come to a new issue in our life, and we become convinced... You know, this time he's just not going to come through. This time he's not going to help. This time he's not going to prove himself to be mighty and merciful. But he does again and again. It's interesting, and I think it's intentional by the author here to show that they were defeated in Ebenezer, and when they they conquer the Philistines, they raise in Ebenezer. Because this up until now, it's not just the good things. It's not the happy times. It's It's everything. It's the bad things, it's the chapter 4s of your life, and it's the chapter 7s of your life. It's when you fail miserably, he's teaching you and being merciful to you, and it's the times you get it right. You're faithful. You turn to him as you're supposed to. It's all of those things and everything in between. It's the good and the bad. First Pres, I think that past expressions of God's grace and mercy ought to be of greater comfort to us than they currently are we too easily forget. 
The up to this point ought to, have, ought to have a greater and deeper meaning to us in our lives, to us in our church, wherever we are. Up to this point says, I can't see the path that's in front of me. It's unlit. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's coming next. But up to this point, he's been merciful and kind and helpful to me. And I praise and worship him for that. If you're at the evening service a couple of weeks ago, I shared this illustration uh, with you, but I'm, I'm going to tell it, but I'm going to tell it a little bit differently than I did then. <coughs> if I look up from my desk in my office, I have a picture that sits uh, on some bookshelves on the other side of my office. And it's an engagement photo of Lauren and me. Uh, it was taken about 11 and a half years ago, uh, roughly a year before we got married. And it's the standard engagement photo that's, you know, super cheesy. You know, it's the, you know, the, the awkward kind of embrace and... It, but you're looking longingly into each other's eyes and smiling, and you know it's it just it makes me laugh every time I look at it, because I, I, I mean I, of course I remember the photo, but I also remember this 25 year old and this 21 year old in this picture, and we had no clue about anything. <laughs> Certainly had no idea of what was coming next over the next 11 and a half years. We have had a lot of Ebenezer's in our own marriage. Some of them have been great, and some of them have been terrible, and we don't ever want to go through them again just like you. We've, moved, we've had four major moves in our life to this point. <laughs> all of them have been hard, and all of them have been great. We've made new friends. We've been part of new churches, and it's been wonderful. We came here just over three years ago. We had no idea what was going to happen once we got here, but we met wonderful people. We've made wonderful friends, and all of you have welcomed us so warmly here, and we're glad that we're here. We've had two kids in that amount of time. Those are Ebenezer's mercy and graciousness from God. But we've had other things. We've had colossal fights and arguments that we never thought we'd come back from. You've had nights when you've sat up and you've looked at the other person and laying in the bed with you and you're convinced, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have married them. Have you ever thought that before? You've had, we've had times when we have not spoken to our family because we've been so hurt by what they've done and said to us Yet, we've also experienced great healing in those relationships that we're so glad that God showed us mercy in that way. You all have the same stories. The awful things that you don't ever want to go through again are mercy from Him too. And then the wonderful joys and, and, and successes that we share together. We have these stories as individuals. We have them as families. We have them as businesses even. You see, Israel prepared to receive God's mercy and repentance. Israel then prayed for God's mercy, and they received it by faith. And Israel looked to the past to remember God's mercy. Now, the sad irony to this story, as I mentioned in the beginning, is that one chapter later, the God that they just cried out for, the God that they just asked to go fight their battles and that conquered for them, they're going to turn around and reject him and ask for an earthly king. You don't need an earthly king, Israel. You have a heavenly king who conquers enemies for you. You don't need an earthly king, Israel. You need an intercessor who prays for you, who prays to this God of mercy on your behalf. But for the purposes of this story, Israel does get it right. They take the posture of the tax collector, uh, yeah, the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Israel didn't need an earthly king. They needed an intercessor. And that's how Samuel points us <coughs> to the ministry of Christ. He's functioning as Christ continually functions for us now. 
Justin read a, a few moments ago from Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is continually now, right now, interceding for us. As one commentator says, we are the subject of Jesus' intercessory prayer. It's a wonderful truth for us today. We have hope in an intercessor. We have hope in a God who fights our battles. Now as we come to the table, we're reminded of all that all over again. We're reminded of the great sacrifice that he has made for us. Have you this morning put your faith in him, in this merciful God, who if you come to him in repentance whether it's for the first time or the millionth time, you will be received warmly with grace and mercy from him. Let's pray. O great merciful God, we thank you for all that you are for us in Christ. We thank you that you love us despite the way we turn our back on you, the way we continue in our sin. Lord, you have saved us and you have given us the righteousness of Christ. And we thank you that you have loved us. Lord, would you prepare us now as we come to the Lord's table, as we receive great grace and nourishment from it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.